It's your friends, Chad Trevick and Meister again, back at it to talk about what exactly price transparency is, how it might or might not be useful in tackling the crisis that we're in surrounding the astoundingly low commodity price of coffee. And I'm also going to ask Chad to talk a little about the specialty coffee transaction guide that we've mentioned a couple of times in some past shows, but we want to get a little bit more in depth about that project and how it might be used as a price correction tool. I know that the first thing you're supposed to do when you introduce a new concept is to translate the words. And so let's translate some of the financial or pricing terms that we're going to be using in this conversation, right? We've thrown some of them around a little. We've talked about FOB, which means free on board, or free on truck, FOT, is the same term, but for countries that don't have a water-based port, that you have to actually drive coffee to a port, uh, usually through another country. So FOT is the term used there. And what those two terms mean is basically the, the price of the coffee once an importer has taken possession of it. So what that basically implies is that that figure includes the price of the coffee that was paid to the producer, the cost of milling, um, the cost of some storage, the cost of any kind of tariffs out of country, export costs, uh, what am I missing? Security. Yeah, security, containerization. So if everyone's cool with that, then we'll also talk about the farm gate price, which is built into that FOB price. Farm gate price means the price that actually went to the farmer, the producer. Farm gate and FOB are not the same. Uh, One is informed by the other, but they're not equivalent terms. The other term that you would use when you were buying green coffee would be X warehouse or the sales price. And that basically means the cost of coffee to the end buyer, to the roaster, for instance. And that does include the shipping from the port of arrival to whatever warehouse it's coming to. And then storage in that warehouse, if it's a spot coffee, would be included in that price. Well done. Thanks. You got it. Do it for a living. (laughs) Okay. So establishing some of those terms, giving you some fuel to work with. Now, when I I would like to know, Chad, when I say the term price transparency, what does that mean to you? To me, now with understanding that I have, having worked at different areas of, of the coffee world, I would say price transparency involves information about what the producer got paid themselves. I know that's a very rare thing to have access to, but I'd like to say that that's what it would mean to me because I want that to be our goal. I want us to get to a place where we can understand in a transparent transaction what part of the price actually stayed with the people who produced the coffee. But in our coffee world, pricing transparency can be limited to FOB, to use one of the terms that we were just talking about. One of the challenges with really centering on a number, any one of these numbers, I would say, except for the farm gate price, that is assuming you really want to know what the farmer's getting paid like I do, I want want to make sure this is good business for the farmer, is that when you focus on one of these terms out of context, it doesn't make a lot of sense so Mm -hmm. you said in your explanation that farm gate is very different from fob price that could not be a truer statement i mean in terms of the price unless somebody has a dry dock on their farm and they're (laughs) taking an fot price at that farm it's 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 not a perfect uh, comparison but that 
farm gate price is very different from FOB because there's very little understanding about what are all those transformation costs, like rattling off that list of, you know, in-country transit, milling, security, all these things. What are all those things? And, and in my opinion, transparency, a transparent coffee starts to ask enough questions to expose that information. Okay. Very interesting. So I don't even know if I answered your question. You absolutely did. Okay. Yeah. All right. I wouldn't let you off the hook if you hadn't. (laughs) Another thing that comes up when you describe your definition of transparency is, and I don't know if everyone listening or everyone in the industry at different levels might know this, but that idea that the amount of money that the farmer received is actually very rare information to have. Maybe we should talk a little about why that's the case. Why is it so hard for us to always know what exactly a farmer got paid? I mean, there are a thousand answers there. Yeah, there there are so many answers. But I'll just try to give you a couple of, let's say, typical scenarios that make these Mm -hmm. waters a little bit cloudy. Yeah, and I'm also interested to hear which ones come to mind for you first. Okay, well, the one that comes to mind for me first is you're a farmer who has a relationship with a specific exporter. And part of that relationship means that you get pre-financing but you get pre-financing in the form of agricultural inputs right. that then you're using on your farm throughout the, the year when you need working capital. How do you exactly account for that then in the final price? Do you right. understand? So like there's the exporter would say, no, I gave so-and-so however many quintales of input A, B, or C, and that has a value of X, Y, or Z, and divide that by the number of pounds that he sold me and you know, that's, that's in his price. Right. That's a really complex example of how cloudy this, this can get. The same can be said of anticipios or pre-financing in the form of cash to give a farmer working capital throughout the year if they have the great fortune of having access to this. Generally speaking, they get access to it at a relatively high interest rate, right. which would mean then that they pay that back when they deliver coffee not just through a deduction of what they owed, but a deduction of what they owed plus the interest. Right. Um, and so the way that these farm gate prices are arrived is different in many different scenarios, including in the cooperative environment where you'd think it'd be the most crystal clear, where you have an idea of if you're a co-op member and you deliver to the central washing facility or milling facility, you get price X, right? Cool. That's your price. That's what you got. Well, not really, because if that coffee sells well by the cooperative into a certain higher price paying market, you might get remunerated back in a second payment. Or if that coffee is sold under some kind of a certification scheme where it has a minimum price requirement, you might get remunerated back in a second payment. And so this idea of having it be a quick, clean transaction, all right, I'm going to sell you the coffee I grew, boom, we're done. That's a pretty idyllic uh, scenario that I don't think happens a whole lot. And so this idea of getting to farm gate ends up being super complicated and, again, kind of paralyzes people. Like we were saying, competition paralyzes people in an earlier conversation. This sort of overwhelm about how do we arrive to this point kind of stops people from trying a little bit. Right. Well, it's also interesting to consider that the examples that you provided are actually producers who should have more transparency in that transaction. Like if it's a producer who's working directly with an exporter and that exchange is happening just between those two partners because they have a relationship, 
that price should be more readily apparent, but it's not because it's complicated mathematically. Mm-hmm. Same thing with a co-op. It's so complicated, sorry to interrupt, no, but no. E- even to the extent that the producer may may not totally understand well, I got a little bit of money. I'm not exactly sure how much I'm going to pay to have it, but it's all right. I'm going to deliver my coffee to this person. It's It'll come right. out in the end. Yeah, it's, it's a kind of insurance, so yeah. to speak, to an exporter to have that coffee once it's been harvested and processed. But those are also two examples of relationships where if transparency isn't drilled down to the farm gate level in that scenario, then how do we expect to get it in scenarios where a producer is so remote that they need to sell to an intermediary simply to get their coffee to market? Or in a, a place where a small producer might bring two kilo of cherry to a washing station or a factory that they maybe have never gone to before, where they don't have a relationship and they're just delivering cash crop. You know, how do you account for the washing station where there's a thousand people who deliver one day and a hundred people who deliver the next day? How do you account for the ways that the market dictates farm gate price yep. from day to day? One day to the other. When a person sits on coffee for a year because they expect the price to go up, and then how do you calculate a farm gate price that's appropriate based on that kind of a scenario? So, I mean, for me, it often seems like when people ask for farm gate price when they're buying coffee from a green seller, and the answer is, well, it's complicated or we can't give you that information, that's one thing that actually makes people feel like, well, you're not doing a good job. Or how can you not know how much the farmer's making? And it feels like a cop-out to say it really is very complicated. And it's virtually impossible in every scenario to know what the producer is getting because most people don't work directly with small producers. The industry would almost grind to a halt if that was the way things were done. Yep. Push back. I can see it in your eyes. Well, so here's... I'm struggling with what I have in my head is this idea that we have as an industry, certain expectations for the way that things should work. Right. And so as we've layered on different ethical priorities and prescriptive solutions in the form of certifications or sourcing guidelines or whatever, we have essentially narrowed the pool of people with whom we can safely work while still avoiding the very risk Mm -hmm. and supply chain atrocities, let's say, that these programs are meant to help companies avoid, the unintended consequence in a lot of them is that you just don't get to work with those smallholders who are usually in situations of not being empowered and Mm -hmm. being dependent on somebody to tell them how much their coffee is worth. It is only a certain kind of farm that you're going to be able to get right. a real clean, cut and dry farm gate price from. And that certain kind of farm isn't your typical smallholder farm. Right. Exactly. And the interesting thing there, too, is that I think a lot of folks right now, because we're scrambling for information and we're scrambling to feel like we have some pathway to follow, we're looking for a guide, some beacon to show us how to do better. So we assume that if we know a farm gate price, that that will be the piece of information that's the last piece in the puzzle. But even farm gate price without context is meaningless. Right. I mean, I can ask someone how much they make an hour That means nothing if I don't know how many hours they work or what city they live in or whether they have kids or whether they want to go to college. So I feel like there's, again, that curiosity plateau. And we can't just rest on that. Like, well, if we just achieve farm gate price for every producer we work with, we'll be okay. I do think we'll be better. 
to me, it's similar to the whole cost of production and right. using that as like figuring out the minimum. Right. And again, I, I use it in this context to say, well, I got it in my head, make sure this is good business for this person. From my mind, that's why that farm gate is so important. But I think we've talked about this before, like contextualizing these prices and what they mean so that, yeah, a farm gate price in Nicaragua might be very, very different and uh, mean the same level of livelihood in Guatemala, right. for example. So that's why I think it's interesting to think about contextualizing the pricing information that we do have with optimized productivity levels optimized cost to produce right and i'm saying optimized with air quotes here because there is no way to predict every kind of condition that exists out there in reality but different coffee institutions are doing their due diligence to understand what's optimal in certain of their environments but if you look at that and you understand in order to support a a living wage a farm gate price of X has to be achieved for the volume of coffee that you produce or things along those lines. Well, the question then for me being, you know, focused on the customer base of roasters, for instance, and roasters who are like increasingly hungry for information that allows them to make ethical business decisions, wanting so badly to give them some clue as to how to make those decisions and to buy coffees that speak to their values and to speak to that mission of sustainability, it becomes hard for me to know what to share and how to share it. Because on the one hand, I can tell them this whole novel length story about the complications of the supply stream, but then it seems like I'm being obscure intentionally because I you know, stop asking so many questions. On the other hand, if I do share information like FOB or Farmgate or just give them information without context, then I'm basically assisting in creating a segment of the specialty industry population that that knows just enough to be dangerous. And they don't actually have the tools that would help them do that better business. So I have gone back and forth repeatedly about six times a day about the value of, you know, certain types of transparency, of sharing FOB, of, you know, walking people through these conversations and recognizing when someone is at the level that they can accept it. You know, I don't also don't want someone to just accept what I'm saying. I'm much more interested in having someone say, but well, why can't you give me that? You know, the discovery is in the conflict. It's in the challenge, but I don't know what to do. But so do you think, I mean, apart from people claiming victory or claiming they've done well when we know we don't have the context for them to be able to make that claim, right? what's the harm that can come of them asking for and even requiring that information from someone selling them coffee? Well, I don't see the harm except that the response from the seller's end tends to be reactionary and based on competition. There's a way that pressure can be created in the marketplace by buyers, by customers, because they have the spending power Mm -hmm. that has a huge potential to do a lot of good. It also has the potential to create an imbalanced competition from the seller side that is not authentic. And we don't have any checks and balances in place to really check how the competition is making us better or how the competition is actually doing greater harm. Because again, we don't have that kind of cohesive culture in the industry. No industry does. It's capitalism. We're not all going to sit around, you know, drinking toddies and sharing all of our like business information. But we don't have this culture of just meeting each other where we are and assuming that everyone's doing a good job. 
And we can't. Historically, we work in an industry where not everyone has even thought about whether they're doing a good job. So I don't know. There's a part of me that is overwhelmed with naivete and a part of me that's overwhelmed with cynicism about how we can be transparent without creating a kind of mercenary environment where then suddenly the transparency itself is subject to confusion or to skepticism. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. What I would say is I really only feel that more information instills more curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the what are the missing pieces then in my understanding? If I know the FOB price and I know right. what I paid, what's all in the middle? How much did it take to get that coffee from Oakland where it landed to the warehouse in Kansas City or wherever it is? And then for how many months did it sit there being financed right. before I myself requisitioned that coffee and said, okay, I'll take it to my facility And oh, it's not only how many days was it financed, but how many days of warehouse storage do I have to pay? And then did I put it on a pallet to have it shrink wrapped? Mm -hmm. Um, Or is it floor loaded in the back of a truck? I mean, all these things, you start to get more curious about all those things that are in the price and how efficient or inefficiently they, they were done. I have a general belief that more information is better information. I definitely would offer counsel to a young buyer or somebody who asked me what's the thing I could do. I would say impose transparency in your commercialization transactions. When you're buying something, make sure you know X, Y, and Z. Right. And I would start with that FOB price. I personally did start with that FOB price years and years ago because it was a way for me to know and understand among the importers that I was working with who did what more and less efficiently right? Um, in terms of getting coffee from point A to point B or putting it in a warehouse or, you know, all the different services that they're providing for me. It was important for me to know and understand, again, using the FOB price and my final price, what was all in there. Mm-hmm. I have a really hard time, apart from this conversation we've had around people's sort of abusive marketing Mm -hmm. Um, of, look at me, I'm doing a good job patting myself on the back with this price that I paid or this FOB price that someone paid that then I bought coffee from, basically. What's uncomfortable to me about that, not is that they're braggart, um, but it's the shame I feel that we don't really even know what an FOB price means. Because again, without this context... Does it cover cost of production? Does it help someone achieve minimum wage or poverty line? Or can they even dream about reinvesting in their farm or renovating a part of it? Or, right. I mean, we don't know what FOB means. So to brag about it, it's uncomfortable, yeah. I mean, in my opinion. To brag about needing transparency and asking information from your supply partners so that you can be on your journey of understanding this thing. Cool. Really awesome. That's interesting. It makes me think of something that I've been considering quite a bit recently, which is how to help companies change their buying model and buying strategies in order to get more information about coffees that make sense with their values. A lot of my mindset when talking about the difficulty that I have about sharing things like FOB or transparency information is that oftentimes I'm talking to buyers who don't have an investment in the coffee that they're buying. 
And so what they're basically doing is buying something off of a restaurant menu because it suits their fancy that day, rather than being more holistic and building in long-term committed relationships with producers or with certain coffees that creates a more sustainable cycle yearly both for the coffee business that can rely on the same product every year and the producers who can rely on the same buyers every year. There's also been a disconnect in the ways that coffee companies have felt able to do that, to grow into a model that includes some level of consistency or stability. And so that's what I've been thinking about lately. If you're a small coffee company that's just chasing the flavor of the week and you are buying I don't know, 50 coffees a year because you're just really interested in coffee profile and flavor and that kind of a high-end model that seems like a different type of model than where my passion really is. It seems less genuine for me for the FOB price to really be something to hang that transaction on because asking the FOB price in that circumstance doesn't help the producer at all. The coffee's already been sold. The producer's already made that money. You don't have any impact on the transaction at the farm level. Instead, maybe we should be talking about how, okay, you're a mid-sized company now. How can we streamline your inventory so that you can work with a smaller group of producers for more of your volume? Or how can you invest in a particular grower? Or how can you grow together with a particular grower? How can we help you manage risk because the crop is going to be different year in and year out? And the thing there that makes that really hard to do is that it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And we've also set this whole thing up to reward, celebrate, and get all excited about those flash-in-the-pan Yeah special coffees think of the auctions think how buyers compete even amongst themselves traveling together for these flash in the pans i mean i get it it's marketing it's it's a story it's something to tell but i think what you are articulating is a more holistic reciprocal value chain value stream arrangement where you start with three to five growers in a group. You mm-hmm. know, next year you're going to open a store, so you need a couple more growers to equate to that volume. And so you're going to add more of them to your buyer group and so on and so forth. Or you but buy then, their 82s instead just say, of just but, buying their yeah. 86s. Or, wow, they had a real bad bout with yep. something during the harvest and their cup just doesn't get to 84 this year. But guess what? You're in a partnership. Mm-hmm. And so you take it and then maybe you have to blend their coffee with something that wasn't an 84 or or what have you. But this is, yeah, it's the reality of a long-term partnership where you're really looking for that mutual benefit. I don't think it's impossible even for very small companies to achieve that. I think that all that requires that level of buy-in and that level of sustainability as a practice is to reconsider what we're in this business for. Because when you are just interested in only buying the coffees that score over 90 points, like first of all, you're not going to have very many coffees on your menu. But you're also interested in a very different thing, which is not sustainability of the entire supply stream. It might be sustainable for an individual business, but it's not sustainable for coffee. And I'm going to probably get in a little trouble saying that because I know that there are lots of people who operate that way. But again, I think that the less we say that that doesn't seem like it's solving this problem the more we dig ourselves deeper. 
the important thing to recognize there, I, I trust me, I'm a part of a lot of transactions where I have felt so frustrated that from year to year, quality variations have meant that producer A, B, or C doesn't qualify. Right. And so then I think, well, what the heck are we building this relationship and supply chain for? Right. If you're just a fair weather friend here, I understand your business model is predicated on highfalutin and fancy, but there have to be some, some alternatives here. Um, so there's this idea that we don't in the same way celebrate that kind of responsible supply chain as we celebrate company X bought the winning lot of right. fancy pants coffee and paid a world record price for it. Can you think of instances where what we're talking about was was celebrated and promoted? I can think of very few like one-offs. Yeah. We've been working with producer so-and-so for five years. This year we were able to buy X number of bags of her coffee. Yeah. You know, but in the same flashy way, it's not exciting. No, you're right. Unless you're a serial monogamist. <laughs> Then it's really exciting. Oh, you've been together for so long. (laughs) That's so sweet. (laughs) Well, I think that that's really interesting. Now to transition into talking a little about the transaction guide. One of the things that is included that I think has a lot of value, you know, we'll go into what exactly the transaction guide is in just a minute. I know I'm talking a little inside baseball here first. But one of the things that you have asked for is the length of the relationship. How long have you been buying coffee from that particular producer or group? And that's another area of the context that we don't often share and we don't talk about unless we're talking about it in an exclusive colonial kind of way where a buyer feels like they own that producer's coffee. Like, you know, you'll see sometimes you'll see a producer who sells to two different importers or two different roasters and the roasters might bristle at the fact that they both have the same person's coffee on their menu. And that's problematic because what we should be doing is saying like, wow, I really hope that you made as much or more money on that sale than you did on this one. We should be encouraging people to sell to multiple entities because that's how price diversification gets. Don't don't tell them that's your coffee. Yeah, or saying, how dare you sell to someone else who may have offered you a higher price than I can. And so then we feel like we're not getting a fair price, which is not what the conversation ideally should be about. But that was enough of a little soapbox for me about about that area of, of transparency. So I would love to introduce the transaction guide, which is kind of like burying the lead. It's kind of why we started talking in the first place. And it's an ongoing project that I think is really catching some speed. And I think a lot of people are really interested. And so I would love for you to talk a little about what it is and how you got involved. And then we can kind of riff on the transaction guide for a while. Okay. So Transparent Trade Coffee is an initiative coming out of Emory University. Professor Peter Roberts has had this project going for, I don't know, maybe three years, where leading roasters donate their FOB pricing. And I don't know then if they also donate their retail price or if the researchers get it themselves. But generally what happens is they calculate then, based on that FOB price and then the retail price, what percentage of that retail price stayed in the country where the coffee was produced? And they call this number the return to origin. So this is all great information, interesting to kind of watch those numbers. And from my perspective in the industry, really interesting to watch who was contributing to this project. But I started to think 
this could be something larger, more interesting, and hopefully more representative of market behaviors rather than just people who are proud of the prices they're paying, sort of celebrating them on this transparency platform, which is great, really great. But I really started to see it as an opportunity to create a tool that could be more broadly applied for more than just those few market actors who are feeling particularly good about their prices. <laughs> so I approached Peter at Emory and said, hey, I have an idea. I've been in this for a long time, this coffee thing. I understand both as a business person and somebody who was the face of a company that was sourcing a lot of this stuff that, you know, Houston, we got a problem. And I said, I can represent a couple of different perspectives here, but I think that you should talk about using this information in a bigger way. And he said, well, there's no way companies are going to give us their pricing information. And I said, I think if you introduce an element of anonymity to allow people to feel safe, if you house this within the research institution, which is Emory University, and have people sign non-disclosure agreements, is that I think there are ways of allowing people to feel safer in contributing their information toward the creation of this tool that they then hopefully will also be able to benefit from mm -hmm. and see the value of. And so that's really where conversations started, and I think that was probably in 2017, what we did is we reached out to people who are already involved in Transparent Trade Coffee and some other folks in the network basically to say, hey, would you be involved in a project like this? And from the get-go, uh, response has been overwhelmingly positive and met with a lot of excitement. People are excited to have this potential utility, let's call it, for the differentiated or specialty coffee market. And essentially what we're trying to do is take all of that donated pricing information and the guide right now represents 10,000 data observations amounting to $340 million worth of coffee. So wow. it's not giant, but it's right. not small. What the researchers did is created a series of tables and slopes related to different qualities, quantities of coffee, mm -hmm. and really starts to show the market players and sellers of coffee if I want this for my coffee, or if I want to pay this for my coffee, this is what I can expect to get for that, you know? Okay. Uh, so if you're a seller of coffee, a producer of coffee, and you know you've got really good coffee, but you've been selling to rather anonymous trade route or, or whatever, but you were a part of a workshop and they kept your coffee and said, it's good stuff. <laughs> maybe you know you could achieve a different price with an alternate trade partner. Mm -hmm. It's just information. We can't say if it's better or worse or right or wrong. Right. We've talked a lot in this series about contextualizing information, and right. we don't have that context yet for what these FOB prices mean. But we know that if the price in the guide, the median price for any specific category of coffee, is higher than the commodities market price, I think we inherently feel like that's a better place to start the negotiation rather right. than say, oh, I don't know, where's the market? Which is, I think, too often how a lot of these conversations start on many levels in the, in the industry. So the guide really seeks to be that alternative. We've met a lot of excited, innovative people looking to sort of change the way this thing works, uh, make it a more equitable experience for more people in the valley stream instead of uh, mostly people on the consuming side. 
met coffee buyers who said, oh my God, I needed this like yesterday. I'm under <laughs> increasing pressures by right. my CFO to pay these historically low commodity prices. And I'm having a hard time saying I can't because they're not our coffees. And now right. they have a tool that's able to communicate a little bit more in line with what their own coffees would be like. Had producers like basically run up when they recognized one of the two of us to say, I used the prices and I got them on this crop this year. We sold this coffee. And uh, you know, so I had some really positive experiences about it. It is right now in this awkward startup phase right. where we did a pilot throughout 2018, released 2018s in December, and we were using the first half of this year, so January through June, to really try to get our plans in order for formalizing for the next three years at least. And that means that we're fundraising, it means that we're onboarding at least 10, if not 15, new data donors. So the data will be rich. We're curious to see if it will be different, how it will be different. That'll come out sometime in June. And then at the end of June, Emory University is hosting its third annual Transparency Colloquium. Data donors are going to assemble before the colloquium meetings and really talk about what kind of formalization we need to put in place to make this tool something that can be more easily relied upon, funded, right. um, and, and also serve as the basis for contextualizing FOB price with FarmGate or with Living Wage. So it's been a really exciting project. The momentum that it has is sometimes overwhelming, and I say overwhelming because it's just myself and the professor at this point, and we're fundraising, so we, we don't have additional resources to throw at this thing. So we do what we can, but it, it feels like we've touched on something that people are interested in talking about. And the university has a great emphasis on capacity building in countries where coffee is grown using this information. In fact, that's one of the ways that we're talking about, no, this isn't collusive. This is not market players coming together to decide on the prices that we pay. Right. This is an inclusive process that is involving producers of coffee in the dialogue and making sure that they are receiving the capacity building necessary to access this information and, where possible, alternative market models. To me, since most of my work is focused on origin, it's a really exciting project. Just the way that I've seen it light people's eyes up if they know they're a producer of a certain quality and they see what their potential is. There's no guarantee, obviously, they're going to get that price, but they at least know that they could work toward it. And if they can't with their existing partners, then they can go shopping for new partners. Yeah, it seems to me like there's so much that's implied in the gathering of more rich data that allows producers to start to think outside of the pathways they've already been using to sell their coffee. And that's simultaneously true with the increased use of social media, the increased use of cell phone and internet technology at origin, which for years was one of the ways that I think buyers kept prices low was to keep producers disconnected from one another. Being remote is a really easy way to keep prices down. So there's obviously a ton of benefits to just handing producers a document that says, 
elsewhere in the marketplace, your coffees are valued this way. And I think the other implications of that will be more producers who go out of their way to learn how to cup coffees, who want to now identify what that means, what the marketplace is looking for, so that they can then, you know, have a tangible goal in terms of just cup score. And then it also encourages folks to start doing their own value capturing, you know, producers learning to roast and things like that, learning how to build a personal brand, which is also something that seems impossible for a someone with one hectare to build a personal brand. But in today's marketplace, that's not impossible. In fact, it's very possible. And there are lots of coffee companies who want to help a producer achieve that. And what we really need is that connective element. And I think that this is one thing that could potentially have that that connective piece. That connection and that use of story and that ownership of one's personal story factors highly into the workshops that Peter Roberts and his team at Grounds for Empowerment at Emory are imbibing all of this capacity building with. We did a group, I don't remember how many participants were in total, Uh, it was a group of women producers in Guatemala, and one of the final outcomes of the workshop is they were working with students at Emory to further curate and edit and then publish each of their personal farm stories. That's Um, awesome. And just to have that experience of working with people and and having them feel sort of tongue-tied about, I don't know, what do I say? I got this farm (laughs) from my grandma. Oh, that's good. (laughs) All right, talk about your grandma. Uh, You know, things like that. It was a really a, a really moving experience. And I can say that a couple of people in that workshop sought and achieved different market access after being after being empowered. So it was a really cool, a really cool experience. That's awesome. So talking about the actual functionality of the data collection and the research, basically what you're asking companies to do is submit a certain number of contracts that they've entered throughout the years, a range of sources by country. And then with that information, there's also what quantity of bags, quantity, quantity, and then FOB price, and then cup score, length of relationship. Are there any other categories? Well, there's as much regional specificity as somebody can provide um, so that we can start to learn. The more data we have, the more we'll be able to learn, like regionally within a country, how does it vary, for example. We have uh, the need to have, like to have, and then icing on the cake. (laughs) And just the more information that we have, the more different ways there are to sort of slice and dice the data and learn about market purchasing behaviors one of the ones you mentioned is one of my favorites, and that's tenure of relationship. And anecdotally, people who are in the guide have said to me, that, thank you for having that on what we submit, because we will pay someone for an 84 coffee who's delivered to us for five years right. significantly more than we'll pay someone's first delivery just because we have that long-term relationship. But so we take this information, we look at the different ways that we can inform the market and the sellers of coffee using it. One of, I think, the really empowering things about it is it's going to allow both sellers and buyers of coffee to make decisions we were talking earlier about the values that companies place on their coffee line. A tool like this could help to support the evolution of that to some future state where we know that pricing is going to come in at levels that more closely covers living wage, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, if you fast forward to a time when we've contextualized working with the Global Living Wage Coalition and the prices that we have in the guide and 
different country coffee institution organizations to try and triangle that information to figure out, is it good? Is it bad? How much better do we need to do? I referenced this example of Michelle Bhattacharya from ONUP is the consultancy firm that she works with, but she did a lot of work with the World Banana Forum. They all coalesced around this idea of living wage and really understanding that they were not going mm-hmm. to be reporting that they were paying prices that were going to pay for a living wage. Again, having more information that we can base these conversations of and set goals for ourselves using, uh, I think is, is super important and relevant to our ability to kind of get ahead and to a place where coffee, at least specialty coffee, differentiated coffee, comes with it in definition, not just quality, but some terms of trade that are informed by these different sources of information. Now maybe we've matured enough to think of quality as being more all-encompassing or holistic or something. I think necessarily. I mean, I think that we as an industry segment are starting to recognize more honestly that our very own existence is jeopardized as we watch the producing countries consolidate into fewer and fewer. Right. Coffees will start tasting more and more similar. I mean, it's, it's just the way it goes. I mean, one of the burning fears or anxieties I have is if you take that information that I just shared with you that, you know, for 80 to 82 point full container load coffee, we're probably not paying a price that covers the cost to produce. Some companies might take that information and say, well, I know I got to buy all my coffee from Brazil then. Right. And I also think that that is a potentially scary outcome. I mean, for a couple of reasons, a very basic humanitarian reason, there aren't alternatives for, even if they're identified as inefficient, using air quotes, producers, that doesn't mean that there is going to be an alternative livelihood supporting activity ready when the market abandons them in favor of of a cheaper producer. Right. But again, I, even though that scares me, I, I, I think all information is good information. It's going to raise a lot of different conversations to, to a higher level than we've had before because we haven't had this kind of... Uh, market-wide pricing transparency information that the specialty coffee transaction guide is giving us. That's awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing what comes out in June and the conversations that'll be going on there. I'm also really interested to see when the transaction guide continues over the course of the next three to five years. Hopefully we see some of those figures trend up. Because right now, it's funny, as you said before, we don't have the context. It's, It's just information. It doesn't necessarily say good or bad. In five or 10 years, we will have an ability to say this is good or bad because we know what we're looking for and we know what, what it takes. Don't you think it'll be awesome if at the same, I don't think it'll be awesome ever if the market keeps going down, but let's say in that same period of time, commodity market pricing has been flatter down and the prices in the guide have gone up because of market recognition of the need to pay to preserve, essentially. Yeah, that Um, is amazing. There's a bunch of things to think about in the future for different iterations of the guide. I mean, one of the things that we think about often is if we onboard one giant data donor, how do they not skew the data? Right. Um, And we're super strategic about how and when we onboard certain folks of certain sizes. And the researchers use medians, not averages, because one person's behaviors could influence the averages, but not the medians. Hmm. So, yeah, it's interesting to think about as the audience or as the collection of data donors evolves, how does the information evolve? 
And we've thought a bunch of different creative ways of tracking year on year with the same donor pool, if you will, and providing that information to those who were in it. But it's, it's interesting to think about how more information being contributed isn't always going to necessarily mean the prices go in a better direction for producers. Right. Well, that's interesting. It'll bring us to the next episode, the final episode of this mini podcast, which will be talking about the role of the consumer in all of this and the role of the consumer in influencing or not having influence on coffee prices. So come back and join us for that one, the final episode of this mini podcast about price transparency. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments or concerns, you can reach Chad at chadtrevick at gmail.com. So it's C-H-A-D-T-R-E-W-I-C-K at gmail.com. Or me at meister at cafeimports.com. We'll see you in a bit. Thank you.